Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore how beliefs shape our world. This week, we're listening to the fifth part of A Prayer for Salmon, a special series produced by our friends at The Spiritual Edge. Now, in this week's installment, we're returning to the run for salmon with producer Judy Silber. She's with the Winnemum Wintu people and their supporters who've gathered to meet for a pilgrimage that honors the return of salmon from the ocean waters as they make their way back to their spawning creeks. The group invited Silber to join the journey that lasts roughly two weeks. It's both physical as well as spiritual as the group follows the path of the Chinook salmon. And it includes rituals that express gratitude to the fish as well as a walking meditation that's intended to raise awareness and bear witness to the modern barriers along the route. Obstacles that make it harder for the salmon to follow their instincts to return to the freshwater rivers and the hallowed and ancient spawning streams. In the last segment, Silber described the physical barriers created by the Corps of Engineers that changed access to the rivers of Northern California. And she revisits the settler history and treatment of the indigenous people of California, whose entire way of life, spiritual, economic, and physical, depended on the water and fish. This salmon run is happening at a time when the Winnemum Wintu are challenging new efforts by the federal government to raise Shasta Dam even higher, further threatening the fish as well as what remains of the Winnemum Wintu's ancestral land. As we rejoin the run for salmon, producer Judy Silber is now 200 miles to the south in the San Francisco Bay Area. The Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta is the next leg of the run for salmon. The two-week ceremony is dedicated to reviving Central Valley Chinook salmon populations. The Winnemum Wintu and supporters want to identify all the obstacles, both environmental and political, on the fish's long migration route from ocean to mountain spawning grounds. So far, we've traveled for a few days by foot. This time, we'll be on a boat, moving through the delta. It's a series of channels and islands, part of a large estuary that starts in the San Francisco Bay and is formed from the meeting of two great rivers, the Sacramento and San Joaquin. In the early morning, a small crew gathers at a marina near the Delta's western edge in a town called Pittsburgh. We're going up the the, uh, Sacramento River from the Delta, and we're going to follow that all the way to Sacramento Discovery Park. Winnemum went to Chief Kalin Susk. We should be getting in there around 1.30 or 2. We're hundreds of miles from Winnemum went to homelands, but the health of this habitat is critical for salmon. It's part of an indigenous foodway, and it's highly stressed. We walk down the dock to board a small fishing boat with room for six. Captain James Netzel leads guided fishing tours and is passionate about salmon. He keeps an eye out for any changes on the river. The levee in South Sacramento on the West Sacramento side is trash. They needed to replace it. 
Chief Kellyanne cares because for her, this is all salmon habitat. Yeah. All right, well, let's probably get going. All right, let's I go. gotta remember how to get out of here. Oh no! <laughs> you remember how to ride this? Pray that I got salmon sense. I'll stick my nose in the water. Lila June, salmon, of course, were a staple for California coastal native communities. Your doctoral research explores all kinds of native foodways and ecosystems. I really look at indigenous food systems in pre-Columbian times and the land management practices that upheld them and the lessons that they can give us today to have more effective and regenerative food systems. What happens when native people can't manage the land in the way that they used to? Well, when you can't manage the land, let's take California, for example, oak trees are actually, they they developed a fire-resistant bark because native peoples had been burning these oak savannas for so many thousands of years that the oak evolved to withstand human fire. So let's say you take away this indigenous fire that was there for tens of thousands of years, you have overgrowth, you have brush come in, and they start to choke out these oaks, and you have uh, depleted soil systems, you have systems that became pyroadapted, all of a sudden go into a state of shock. And that's actually what's going on throughout the continent. So what happens when indigenous people lose their authority, their ability to manage these systems? Well, just like the oak tree became adapted to humans, the humans became super adapted to the oak trees or whatever biosystem they're from. We created anthropogenic systems. We architected abundance. We engineered systems that benefited not just humans, but all life around us. Like my people, we're very adapted to corn. If we don't have blue corn, our systems go into shock. And similarly, with native people in California, if they don't have salmon, their systems go into shock. You can be Winnemumwintu, but not be eating the things that make you Winnemumwintu. And as we see in the Winnemumwintu community, there's an epidemic of diabetes. And people will even say, oh, there's, you know, why aren't they more healthy? And it's like, you destroyed their food system. They're, they're eating, but they're not being fed. Captain James Netzel steers the small boat out onto the water. The people on board will become quite chatty later, but for now, everyone is quiet. It's a spectacular feeling to be out on the hazy blue-gray water, but there's also a feeling of emptiness. Scientists tell me this unique habitat is probably one of the most altered places on the planet. Of the original 500,000 acres of freshwater tidal marsh, 98% of it is gone. We don't see much wildlife, just a few birds. The edges of this once meandering waterway are sharply defined, an indication of how much it's changed. I call it a channel instead of river because it's got levees on both sides of it. It makes it look like a big channel instead of a river because this should be a meandering river and it should be big and wide, but no, I guess they didn't like that. Once the Sacramento River was big, strong, and unpredictable, it would sometimes flood the entire Sacramento Valley to create a giant inland sea. Then, in the mid-1800s, Euro-American settlers recognized the valley and the area around the delta as valuable farmland. They piled peat and rocks on the banks to build the first levees. 
They drained the Delta's marshland. They cut down trees like sycamore and maple and removed the tule, a reed important for birds and fish. Then, starting in the 1940s, the Central Valley Project began diverting water from the Delta to farmers and cities further south. To understand how much the Delta's landscape has changed, I met up with Letitia Grenier, a scientist with the San Francisco Estuary Institute. So you take a place that was this enormous, enormous wetland and you take 98% of it away. It's a totally different place now. She helps me imagine what it was like. The analogy I've used for it before is that it was the refrigerator of California. It was a place for everybody to come and eat because these marshes are super productive. And so you would have grizzly bears coming. There were tule elk that came, you know, wolves. And there were these incredible runs of salmon as well as other fish that are only found in the Delta. And there were some really amazing accounts of what the early European explorers found in terms of salmon. You know, as the salmon ran upstream, that they were literally like their backs were touching each other. Adult salmon heading upstream don't eat. They're focused on getting where they need to go to spawn. But juveniles need to bulk up. A young salmon that's big and fat is more likely to survive in the ocean. The Delta offered plenty of food. The Delta also offered lots of places where fish could hide or rest in what was an intricate water maze. If you think about it, we took a marsh that was kind of like the tissues in your body with the arteries and the capillaries and the blood going in and out. And what we did was kind of got rid of all the capillaries, but the big vessels are still there. And this is a big part of the reason why we see salmon doing so poorly. They're essentially running a gauntlet of high velocity water where there's nowhere to rest. There's a lot of predators and there's not that much food. On the boat, we continue upstream. Large wind turbines come into view on the left. To the right is farmland. All around us are signs that the demands of modern-day California are prioritized over the health of the Delta. On the other side of that bush is a, a warning sign. Chief Colleen points to a sign on a pole that rises from water near the river's left bank. Gary Thomas is here. He's a steady run for salmon presence every year. He reads the sign out loud. So we're saying warning, don't anchor or dredge, natural gas pipeline crossing. Pipelines are going under the river right here. See that red and white? That's what that is. CPN Pipeline Company, 877-432-5555. Between here and our final stop in Sacramento, more natural gas pipelines will cross beneath the water. As we continue on, we see oil rigs set up on land that's dry and stripped of most vegetation. According to a California Public Utilities Commission map, this part of the Sacramento River has over 100 active oil and gas wells. All of this infrastructure makes wetlands restoration difficult and expensive. Gary says after Standing Rock in 2016, where protesters questioned the safety of an oil pipeline, he also thinks about leaks. Everybody who has plumbing problems in their own home knows that every pipe will leak. On the run for Salmon's first year, Gary was the one who noticed the pipelines and oil rigs. He tells me he used to work on a rig for Malcolm Drilling in South San Francisco. As the boat speeds up, we almost have to shout to be heard. Gary says one day he woke up to what he was doing. I kind of had an epiphany about destroying the earth, drilling in the, whole, in the earth, 
So it's kind of like, I don't think I should be doing this anymore. It was a conscious decision. Participating in the run for salmon has inspired Gary to consider his ancestral connections to Chinook salmon. He tells me because he didn't grow up with salmon, he's had to work at developing a taste for the fish. At first, you know, because I didn't really have a taste for salmon, and then you realize uh, the diet we have nowadays. You know, we don't we don't have that consistency of having salmon in our diet, so that was pretty real disheartening. Removing salmon from the diets of indigenous people has had serious consequences. Karuk people in the far north of California have helped to document the harm. I spoke by Zoom with Karuk ceremonial leader Ron Reed. My colonial name is Ron Reed, and my Karuk name is Mkaka. Karuk territory is in the Klamath River Basin, where salmon runs were once prolific. All of that changed in the course of Ron Reed's lifetime. I'm a traditional dip net fisherman. I used to fish for the ceremonies, for our elders, for our community. But more importantly, I used to fish for my family, my extended family. Now I'm unable to fish for my extended family, unable to fish for my family, unable to fish for the ceremonies, unable to fish for the elders, unable to fish for the community. That puts us the same situation as the Winneman went to right now. He and a University of Oregon professor teamed up to do some research. They collected data that indicated increases in diabetes and obesity and strains on mental health, all caused by the salmon's decline. What happened to his community gives Ron Reed empathy for other Native people who have experienced similar losses. I feel for the Winneman went to. I feel for other tribes up and down North America because they've been forcibly removed from their lifestyle and put in existence that we are less than human. For everyone on the fishing boat, pondering the state of salmon is painful. These waters once supported one of the most diverse and plentiful Chinook fisheries in the world. Captain Nussel tells me that even in his lifetime, the numbers of salmon on the Sacramento River have gone down. And we used to have 10-mile-long schools. I mean, just 10 miles of fish from, like, here to Sacramento would just be a solid line of fish going in. And now we got little pods of 50 or 60 fish. Chief Colleen says salmon shouldn't be so scarce. Really, we should have a paradigm shift where we are... The economy of California should be based on the salmon and not on GMO farming. When I first heard Chief Colleen say this, I was blown away. The California I grew up with is known for Silicon Valley technology and Central Valley produce. But before dams took over the state's major rivers and streams, we were a salmon state. Salmon could be found from the mountains to the sea. And so that's why we're saying, like, what are the effects of this waterway? And considering what could be done, you know, if people knew and if salmon were important enough, you know, what could we do? We're going to turn our engines off and we'll see which way the river takes us. Our small boat is approaching our final destination in the city of Sacramento. We're maybe 100 yards from the entrance to what's called the Delta Cross Channel. 
It's a channel that diverts water from the Sacramento River and sends it south and is an important example of the way water is routed away from the delta. Captain Netzel turns off his motor. He has a point to prove, that the channel can pull young salmon off their migration path. And I'll tell you, 99% of the time, if there's no wind blowing, blowing us the wrong direction, we'll get sucked into the channel. And we're a 23-foot boat. Think about a little salmon smolt that's an inch long. The Delta Cross Channel's gates aren't always open. But when they are, salmon can get sucked in from the force created by pumps. When this happens, the young juveniles never make it to the ocean. They never return to lay eggs and reproduce. It's one of the more controversial aspects of how the feds and state handle Sacramento and Delta waters. This water right here is being diverted. This, see the gates right there? They're up. And so that means the Delta pumps are on. So it's pulling water down this channel. And that's how the fish get uh, confused. The way human engineering reroutes the flow of water is mind-boggling. But the biggest takeaway is this. Today, only about 50% of water that should flow through the delta makes it out to the ocean. That's what's left to maintain this habitat and the San Francisco Bay. The rest goes to cities and farms. As we continue upstream, we see irrigation pipes casually plopped into the water. Also, construction of new levees and an invasive plant that's choking tall trees that shade the water. All stresses on a river that's still home to salmon. Does it um, make you crazy that uh, people do all this work to create what nature already knows how to do? Right, and it creates these, um, I don't know, people look at that as jobs, right? Those are people's jobs, to do all of that nonsense. And we're doing more destruction than we are doing help. We disembark at a dock in the city of Sacramento, the state capital, and the place where so many of the current laws and regulations controlling this river got a start. A group of Wintu and Run for Salmon supporters greet us with a song. The song says they're getting ready to win. To win the battle to bring salmon back. To see them thrive again on the Sacramento River. To once again become part of the ecosystem on the McLeod River, where the Wintu's ancestors lived. Chief Kellyanne says they don't know how it will all turn out. But despite the obstacles they've observed on the boat, they have to play to win. Over the next few days, the Wintu will rest and then continue up the river on another boat. When this human journey gets hard, when bodies get tired or personalities collide, or when they realize how hard it will be to bring about change, Chief Kellyanne reminds the group of the salmon's travails. From ocean to spawning grounds, they swim hundreds of miles. They navigate the natural and human-made obstacles. They expend all their energy so their progeny can repeat the cycle of life. They never give up, she says. The run for salmon is only two weeks, 
But during the rest of the year, Chief Colleen is still thinking about the fish. Like on this fall day, when she's traveled 80 miles to visit a nondescript meeting room where decisions about water get made. These contractors, I think, are across the board, irrigation contractors, and so this Reclamation Reform Act term on page 31... In the small town of Willows, about halfway between the Bay Area and Redding, sits the Tehama Calusa Canal Authority. In a public meeting, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation and Irrigation Districts are finalizing contracts for water that flows out of Shasta Dam. On uh, paragraph 27, just to note that most of these guys are local governments, with the exception of the Mutual Water Company, and so um, we'll see some differences across the system there according to that. Bureau of Reclamation officials and irrigation district attorneys sit at white folding tables arranged in a U-shape. In the audience are about a dozen district representatives and Chief Colleen and me. We are the only members of the public. Mm -hmm. This meeting is mostly procedural, but Chief Colleen has come to learn what she can. We are hoping to get the contractor's specific version back to each and within 30 days. So let's, Jeff, would like to take a quick caucus and we'll... Okay. Chief Colleen and I are told we have to leave while district officials and attorneys meet. Sorry, we're... I had anticipated meeting two different areas. We're escorted into a small room down the hallway where we look over papers handed out during the meeting. All right. Pardon the inconvenience. And you'll, you'll let us know. I'll when come back and... You won't forget us. Thank you. <laughs> it's too much. I mean... How can you follow all this? And how can you, you know, stand up for the salmon if you don't really understand the whole process? The contracts being finalized today will set up water deliveries to irrigation districts in the Sacramento Valley. It's hard to even, I mean, they don't really care about Shasta Dam. They just care about that canal coming from the Sacramento River. That's, you know, there's no fish in the canal. <laughs> so they don't really worry about, you know, the fish the flows for the fish as long as they have flows in their canals. Yeah. About 20 minutes pass, and a guy from the irrigation district knocks to tell us the meeting will resume. Back in the meeting, the lawyers wrap up. We do have a, oh, sorry. We do have an opportunity for the, any oh, yeah. Now is the time if any members of the public want to speak. Well, I, I do have a comment on... on uh, from the sidewall where we sit, Chief Colleen stands up. Yeah. I'm Colleen Sisk. I'm the chief of the Winnemum Wintu tribe of uh, McLeod River. It's which where this water comes from. And we are very concerned about the restoration of salmon uh, coming up to our river again, and also the salmon in the Sacramento River. I just wanted to be here and let you all know that uh, the salmon are still important, not just because they're a food or a fish, but they're important to water. Chief Colleen is saying that salmon play an important role in the health of California's waterways. As a keystone species, it has an outsized impact on the ecology where it lives. I'm just here to say, you know, I, I hope that maybe some of you, maybe not this year, but maybe coming up, that things can change, that we can move towards protecting the water a little better. Then she takes the opportunity to bring up another long-standing hurt, the lack of adequate protection for Native American cultural resources in California. Every time something is taken away, you're erasing the fact that we are here. I'm hoping that 
you know, the water districts, that you'll, you'll put something in there that protects the, the villages and the sites and, and the remains. A lot, of, a lot of people lived here before the state became a state. So thank you guys. Thank you. Oh. The meeting ends. No one comments on what she said. All right. Uh, I'll conclude our session here with TC contractors, and then you're free to leave. After the meeting, it occurs to me that the bureaucracy we've just observed is a legacy of policies started in the mid-1800s. American settlers to California established governments and laws that supported genocide, slavery, indenture, claimed title to their land, and otherwise treated Native people as inferior. They had little to no rights to protect cultural resources. For tribes like the Winnemumwintu, this erasure continues. The government continues on, holding meetings and issuing contracts as if their concerns do not exist. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We're in the midst of part four of A Prayer for Salmon. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining this week, we continue the special series, A Prayer for Salmon, by our friends at The Spiritual Edge. As we return to the program, producer Judy Silber is accompanying the Winnemum Wintu and their supporters as they travel up the Sacramento River to bear witness to the obstacles that make it nearly impossible for the Chinook salmon trying to return to their ancient spawning waters. Let's get back to the story. <laughs> All right, you ready? Yeah. Okay. Holy. 
<laughs> the run for salmon has arrived near the university town of Chico, about 140 miles north of the San Francisco Bay Area. To get here, we've made our way on foot and by boat as we follow the salmon's migration path up the Sacramento River. We'll now switch to bikes. From a community stockpile, Winnemum went to Doug Schofield and his cousin Jared Ward choose a tandem. Tandem is a little difficult. you got to learn how to work with your people. We haven't learned that yet, so he keeps trying to go left and I keep trying to go right. He's trying to hold on. <laughs> but if we're going to get these salmon back, we need to learn how to work together. <laughs> it may take a couple wrecks. <laughs> I suspect most Californians don't think too hard about the state's history and its takeover by Euro-American settlers. But for indigenous people, it's hard to forget. To help us understand, here's Lila June Johnston, an indigenous scholar who is trying to find ways to reconcile past and present. I think that a lot of people boil down history to, well, humans conquer humans. It's just a part of nature. And it's just happened throughout history. So sad. It's in the past. Uh, let's move on. Let's pretend you, you made a meal for me the day before and fed me and were kind to me. And the next day, I, I barge into your house, take everything, beat you up, kick you out, call you primitive on the way out. You probably wouldn't say, oh, that's just human nature. You wouldn't say, you know, it just happens. You would say, Lila, that was mean, and we, we deserve some justice here, and uh, let's not forget about that, and let's make things right, right? Like, give me my house back. <laughs> and so it's, it's just insane, but what we've always wanted as Indigenous peoples and what we still want today is we just want to be family. We want to be relatives with other human beings, but, but people need to treat us right. So for Native people, it's about reclaiming our languages, our identity, reclaiming our worth, and reclaiming our own destiny. And on the non-Native side, it's about being humble, respectful, listening, uh, honoring the fact that Native peoples are the original and foremost scientists of this land, and we probably should follow their leadership. Can we turn the guitar up just a little bit? Run for Salmon participant Nicole has gathered up a few young people to help bang out percussion on two large metal trash bins. To the tune of Say My Name by Destiny's Child, she sings lyrics written with the salmon in mind. Salmon run, salmon run, the prayers are all around you. Ancestors have found you, won't stop until it's done. Salmon hey, Hitunani, Hitunanam. Hey, welcome to occupied Machuta territory. You are welcome here. Ali Metters Knight, a Machupta tribal member, speaks at the outdoor concert put on by the Run for Salmon. She tells the audience seated in front of a makeshift stage about her people's connections to the Chico area. And I explain it as a territory because a lot of time people say, oh, you're Machupta, this is your land. I'm like, oh, I don't want land, I don't own anything. But as far as territory, yeah, I have a lot of responsibility. We have, for the last 150 years, dealt with the onslaught of colonization. Not only the colonization of the people, but the colonization of the land. And in that, we have done a lot of destruction. The Machupta have lived on this land since time immemorial. But starting in the mid-1800s, Mexican land grants began to redistribute it to settlers. On the campus of California State University, Chico, there's a creek where kids hang out today. It's a place that 
some members of the Machupta tribe have described as being kind of a, a special place. This is Jesse Dizzard. He teaches anthropology at the university. Because it was thought of as a place where creator may have brought human beings into the world. Kids go there to make out and smoke whatever they smoke these days, and they don't know the history of the place. They don't know what it was. They just see it as, oh, it's another little spot on campus. Ali Metters Knight says the Machupta haven't forgotten what was taken from them. When you go through a grocery store and you see groceries and you see magazines and you see lights and you see a checker, that's not always been there. There was a creek underneath there. There was a tree underneath there. There were frogs that lived there. There were a lot of beautiful things that lived there. And it was way better than what you see in a grocery store. It had way more to offer. The next morning, the group gathers at the entrance to the farm where they spent the night. And hopefully it's a good day to ride. <laughs> right? Not too hot. Chief Kalin Sisk stands in the center of a circle to prepare us for what we'll see up close on the bikes, how agriculture has transformed the Sacramento Valley and the demands it places on the river that flows through here. I just want to uh, put down this short prayer to Olelbus. That's what we call the creator. Olelbus, hope win and win and win to I walk it. Elty win to I walk it. Chief Kaleen is interrupted by her granddaughter, Maya, who plays music on a cell phone. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> My younger generation is coming up. <laughs> you can see the struggle. <laughs> That's why we're going to bring those salmon home. We're going to bring them home and uh, all of our rivers will be better. So we ask Elvis to look at your heart, look at your mind, settle your hearts down so that you can enjoy this. Put all your troubles to the side for today. And then you can be stronger to face the things that will come our way. I approach Chief Kaleen's son, Michael Preston, as he sits on his bike, ready to take off. I've got my uh, run for salmon baton slash staff. Michael will ride at the front of the group and carry the baton shaped like a salmon with blue and red feathers hanging down. Flicker for the, for the volcanoes. And blue jay feathers for the rivers and oceans. That's the bigger prayer journey that the salmon, as well as us, we're a part of, is the fire and water elements that can control our water systems, to control the world, really. And so we're paying homage to that. Fire and water. These elements are out of balance, he tells me. Over the last few years, California has suffered greatly due to wildfires. There's not enough of us people who consider fire sacred and pray to sacred fires anymore. And there's not enough people who consider water sacred and pray to the waters anymore. So there's, they're off balance for our responsibility as Winnemum Winsu people to help restore balance to our area of the world. The run for salmon pedals through Chico under the shade of tall trees, almost none of them indigenous to the area. Then we head west toward the Sacramento River. We arrive at a quiet one-lane road. On one side is the wide blue of the river. On the other side are orchards lined up in perfectly straight rows. In a world paved over with concrete, I would usually take comfort in the green. But up close on the bike, these look more like factory trees. 
I catch up to Michael Preston at the front of the group. Loud cars and trucks shoot by. We cross narrow irrigation canals with muddied water. We pass farm after farm after farm. I think those are walnuts. Mostly just people see how big the fields are from the freeway, but if you go back in these back roads, you can really see how much of the land is really being farmed with water-intensive crops. Nuts such as walnuts, almonds, and pistachios are big business in California, with billions of dollars worth exported overseas every year. Water to irrigate the trees and other crops draws from the Sacramento River or the aquifer below the ground. That's turned water into a scarce resource. It's also completely reshaped the geography here. The valley floor once filled with so much water, it was passable by boat in the wintertime. In the spring, thick wild grasses, wild oat, and clover grew tall. The diverse habitat attracted huge flocks of migratory birds and other animal species, like elk and grizzly bears, which we no longer see. In the decade that followed the 1849 gold rush, California's population more than tripled. The new settlers set about draining swamps and bogs, building levees, flattening potential fields, cutting down oak trees, and clearing away pretty much anything that threatened their ability to farm. In 1849, a settler named John Bidwell bought a large ranch in Machupta territory, land that would become present-day Chico. An entrepreneurial type, he began experimenting with new crops, including some that are now California staples, such as walnuts, almonds, and peaches. He and others had no doubt this was progress. The Run for Salmon group pulls into a small rest area close to the Sacramento River. It's hot. Everyone reaches for water bottles. In addition to bikes, the support vehicles are also here. Jared Ward blasts one of his songs from a car speaker. The day is full of lighthearted moments like this. Lots of inside jokes and teasing. But the group is also well aware of what took place here. It's a disturbing part of California's history that most people who live in the state don't know much about. Before colonization, California was home to an estimated 300,000 indigenous people. By the 1870s, the population had fallen to one-tenth of that, from disease, malnutrition, forced marches to reservations, and outright massacres. Everybody wants to play a blind eye and sit back and listen to the propagandized history of this world, of this, of this continent. Gary Thomas, you may remember from previous episodes, is an Alem Pomo ceremonial singer and here to support Chief Colleen Sisk. But what's happening is with all the devastation is all the ancestors are coming up, all the spiritual side is coming up. And because we're so connected now with our spirituality, everybody's absorbing that and feeling that massacre, feeling the animosity that happened to our people a long time ago. He tells me he feels the spirits of those ancestors and the horror of their experiences. I have felt it throughout this whole trip. That's my purpose on this because I'm the one supposed to be singing and praying for those massacred and slaughtered and people that have been up and down this river. The ones that used to feed off the salmon, I'm here to pray for them. That is my position. That's been my position. We ride some more, up and down slight hills along wide two-lane roads. 
Other than the cars and trucks and endless rectangular fields, it's pretty empty out here. A herd of cows watches and moves as we bike past. After a few hours, we stop to eat at a perch overlooking the Sacramento River. The contrast is stark. Oak and bay trees cover slopes going down to the water. It's nice and quiet out here right now. Michael Preston looks around. Lots of oak trees, black oak trees, and we got the river right here. Hopefully there's salmon in there. We want more and more wild salmon. But we're starting to get more and more back into the Northern California, closer to our area. About 60 miles from here, near the present-day city of Redding, a large massacre of native California people took place. American settlers in the valley had raised an alarm about a supposed pending attack by Indians. Captain John C. Fremont and Scout Kit Carson were in the area. They went to investigate. By the Sacramento River, they came upon a large group of Wintus. Benjamin Madley, a professor of history at University of California, Los Angeles. This is an instance in which elements of the U.S. Army led by massacred what was probably a group of people who were simply gathered to fish and to dry and or smoke that salmon along the banks of the river. John Fremont and his men surrounded them and opened fire. Then they charged into the village. One U.S. soldier said, quote, The bucks, squaws, and papooses were shot down like sheep, and those men never stopped as long as they could find one alive. They also pursued on horseback those who tried to escape, quote, tomahawking their way through the flying Indians. Madley estimates as many as 1,000 Wintu people or more were killed on that day. The colonizers often believed or convinced themselves or convinced each other that they had to strike first against indigenous people unless they wanted to wait for indigenous people to strike them and suffer those consequences. So the loss of a cow could lead to the massacre of an entire community. California's first governor was a man named Peter Burnett. He publicly declared to both houses of the legislature, and I quote, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. The idea that extinction of Native people was inevitable, even part of God's plan, took root in settlers' minds. It's much more convenient and acceptable for us to think that something is inevitable than to think that we are committing horrible, egregious crimes. He estimates that over a 27-year period ending in 1873, state-sponsored militias, vigilantes, and federal troops murdered as many as 16,000 California Native people. And initially in the research, I thought, maybe these are rogue operators. But it turns out that governors and state legislators put the power of the purse behind these operations. Three bills in the California legislature authorized the spending of more than $1.1 million for militias. The federal government also approved and paid for Indian killing campaigns. But in addition to getting money, the people who participated were also eligible to get land from the federal government. So they were, they were taking land from California Indian people as pay for killing California Indian people. (sighs) Um. 
It is pretty awful. Yeah. It is awful. He says the money gave a nod of approval to vigilante groups. The tragic story of the Yana people in Tehama and Shasta counties shows the intensity of settlers who wanted the Indians gone. According to Benjamin Madley, before 1847, the Yana may have numbered more than 3,000 people. As the white population increased, the Yana retreated to the mountains where they had limited resources. Then in 1858, settlers near the town of Red Bluff declared they wanted extermination or complete removal. Many Yana were rounded up and confined to reservations. Still, the killing continued until settlers effectively reached their goal. Today, there are people who claim Yana descendancy, but there is no Yana tribe. The Winnemuwintu also experienced the terror of those killing years. Chief Colleen Sisk heard stories from her elders. There's a, a little saying that comes down the line through my grandma. She goes, we're only here because they were bad shots. Not that we didn't get shot at, but they were bad shots. They missed. That's why we're here. I think about what they did, you know, to, to just live so that we're here. We apologize on behalf of the citizens of California to all California Native Americans. In 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom issued a first ever apology to the state's Native peoples. For the many instances of violence, maltreatment, neglect, murder inflicted on the tribes. He established a Truth and Healing Council to clarify the historical record. Chief Colleen is a member. Part of the mission includes gathering narratives from California tribes. The council is expected to issue a final report in 2025. It may include recommendations for reparations. A few months after Governor Newsom's address, Chief Colleen Sisk and other Winnemumwintu are invited to attend the annual Chamber of Commerce State of the City Address in Reading. Mayor Julie Winter is speaking in a large, echoey meeting hall. The Reading area was settled thousands of years ago by the Wintu people, who were made up of nine distinct bands. Today, several tribes of Wintu people live in the Reading area, including the Reading Rancheria, the Wintu tribe of Northern California, and the Winnemum Wintu. The mayor asks all Wintu present to stand. I apologize for the grave injustices that were perpetrated on your families. I am grieved that you were not protected by your local government and that your people have suffered to this day. After the speech, local insurance agent Derek Parsons is so moved, he approaches the chairman of the Wintu tribe of Northern California. I don't, it doesn't mean a whole lot, but just wanted to let you know that I support you all and, and your culture and continuing heritage. Thank you, thank you. So I love seeing you up here. It's really neat. So thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Oh, see our museum of Shasta Lake City. I thought it was great today because we're just making a statement and saying, look, we're, we don't support, you know, what happened in the past. We live in this land that they took care of. Chief Colleen Sisk isn't so impressed. She acknowledges it took courage for the mayor to make such a speech, but she grumbles that an apology without substance isn't worth much. Grandma says uh, apologies are just words. You know, you can you can say, you know, like in school, they make you say it. Apologize then. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> but it it doesn't fix it, right? <laughs> so, like like she says, you know, if if um, two boys are fighting and the one boy breaks the other boy's arms, then he has to. If he's really sorry, then he'll carry the wood that that boy would have carried for the grandmother. He would do that to clean the slate. That's an apology. She's skeptical of empty promises, empty words. How sincere could this apology be? After all, the Wintu invited to the luncheon event had to pay for their own tickets. Apology or not, help or not, she wants Salmon back on the McLeod River. The run for Salmon continues on. Prayer for Salmon is a special series by The Spiritual Edge. Now, a longer version of this episode and previous installments of A Prayer for Salmon, if you want to catch up, are available at thespiritualedge.org. Support for the series comes from a number of donors and foundations, including the Templeton Religion Trust, California Humanities, the Calapia Foundation, Save Our Spirits, and The Water Desk, an independent journalism initiative of the University of Colorado Boulder. Judy Silver is the executive producer and co-host. Loretta Williams, Deborah George, and Jeb Sharp are the editors. Tarek Fauda and Chris Agua are the sound engineers. And Seth Samuel worked on sound design. Lindsay Myers-Hamley is the digital content manager. Adrian Rodriguez and Deborah Kroll worked as producers for the series. Katie McCletchen contributed to research. Donya Abdelhamid is the fact checker. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in finding out more about us, you can head over to our website at interfaithradio.org. And while you're there, you can sign up for the newsletter, explore the archives, and stream the podcast. You can take us on the go as well. Just search Interfaith Voices in the podcatcher of your choice. And while you're there, help us out, leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and myself. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, music, and sounds by Blue Dot Sessions. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember, friends, wherever you are, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.